everybody. Welcome to the Deadology Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Weiner, and today is August 29th, 2023, and this will be the fifth episode of the podcast. And for this episode, let's do some Deadology. We're a couple days away from September 2nd and Labor Day weekend, and September 2nd is one of the 33 essential dates of Deadology in a book I wrote a few years back. And let me explain uh, how I came about the 33 essential dates, what the criteria for that is. Uh, First, it might be easy to explain what not is an essential date, because some people get confused with this. Um, May 8th, the famous Cornell show, that on itself is not an essential date. That's just one amazing day in Grateful Dead history. If May 8th were to be an essential date, there would have to have been at least two other noteworthy shows on that day, which I didn't feel they were. So consequently, May 8th was not selected as an essential date. Now, an obvious choice for essential date would be New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve, December 31st, because of all the great shows they played. Uh, that's a no-brainer. You know, there's at least 10 noteworthy shows that were played on New Year's Eve. So de- December 31st is an essential date. And uh, the one we're going into now, obviously, is September 2nd. Uh, is an essential date. There's three or four noteworthy shows on that day. They played the Grateful Dead played eight times on September second. Uh, the first show was 1966, La Dolphin in Hillsboro, California. There's no existing tape of that show, so we don't have much to say about that one. Um, on September second, 1968, they played at Betty Nelson's Organic Raspberry Farm in Salton, Washington. Now that is an amazing show. I'd highly recommend. Uh, Digging that one out. That's uh, Betty Nelson's Organic Farm, Organic Raspberry Farm, 1968. A lot of great tunes on that. Uh, Some very unusual playing that night. Uh, And then they took a 10-year break from September 2nd, but they came back strong late in the 70s and throughout the 80s. Uh, September 2nd, 1978 is the Giant Stadium show. First time they played Giant Stadium. Uh, The following year, they played in Augusta Civic Center, 1979. Uh, one of the more intimate venues that they played on the uh, East Coast at that time. Great place. I saw the, the uh, Dead there in 1984. Uh, another cool place to see the Dead was Rochester uh, War Memorial Auditorium. Uh, dead played there September 2nd, 1980, and that may be the show of the year. That's why I'm focusing on Giant Stadium and War Memorial for this episode, because they were such great shows. Uh, then they again played on September 2nd in 1983 at the Boise Pavilion in Boise, Idaho. That's that's another great show. Um, I believe it was released, I can't remember the volume, it was, re- was released as a Dave's Picks. They played Help on the Way, Slipknot Franklin's, um, uh, uh, great, great show. That one's worth checking out. And the last two Grateful Dead shows on this date, 1985 in the Zoo Amphitheater in Oklahoma City, and in 1988 at the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland. And there also was a Jerry Garcia band show the following year in 1989, September 2nd, 1989, in Merriweather Post Pavilion. I happened to be at that show. That was the only time I seen Jerry Garcia on September 2nd. But now let's jump back and go to 1978 Giant Stadium. And uh, this weekend uh, on September 2nd will be the 35th anniversary of this uh, amazing show in East Rutherford, New Jersey. So the Giants Stadium show comes almost exactly one year after the 
legendary English Town 1977 show. Um, you know, that was a, a huge, the biggest show of the year, biggest attendance. Um, you know, it uh, featured Marshall Tucker Band um, and I think New Riders also that day. Uh, just a, a landmark event in uh, Grateful Dead history. And it turns out that almost a year to the day, they show up in the Swamplands of Jersey again and play the largest concert of 1978 in first time playing Giant Stadium. And on this uh, occasion, New Riders of Purple Sage opened up and then Willie Nelson followed. And then the Grateful Dead hit the stage after an introduction from John Sher. And um, this show, uh, want to put just so is this was right around this time they were uh, debuting the songs from uh, Shakedown Street. They had just debuted Shakedown Street at their last show in Red Rocks. They didn't play it here in Giant Stadium. Um, and also they were hitting the end of an era. It was gonna. They were getting close to. The, they didn't know it at the time, but they were getting close to the end of the God Show era. Uh, Keith and Donna. This was one of their uh, final tours. They would be done with the band on February seventeenth, nineteen seventy nine. Um, and also, the this was this giant stadium show was the last show uh, before they took off for Egypt. So uh, this uh, one of the I would call this one of the top five performances of nineteen seventy eight. Uh, happens at a, a watershed uh, kind of moment for the Grateful Dead. So they, uh, this show, they come out, they just come out with, um, I, this show, the creativity was kind of thrown out the door. The Grateful Dead were the best band in the land. They came out and played their best songs. There were no huge surprises this night, but they played with such energy. It was uh, really an incredible thing. I remember the first time I heard this tape, Nobody, I got the tape from, I can't remember who I got it from. I got both sets and um, I'm listening to it. And I was kind of blown away by how long the jams were in each song. The Jack Straw, the Friend of the Devil is rolling along. And I'm listening, I'm listening. I'm like, my God, I ne- nobody had ever cued me in about this tape. It was, you know, it was probably 1981, 1982 when I was listening to it for the first time. And I had a new tape to go brag about to my all my deadhead friends, say, you guys are not going to believe how good this show is. That's how good and consistent the jamming is uh, from Giant Stadium. So they open up with Jack Straw. Uh, very hot guitar guitar work from uh, Jerry on this. Longer than usual for 78. And uh, Friend of the Devil in the second spot. Another, just uh, one of the best performances of Devil, Devil you'll ever hear. One uh, oddity of it, uh, Garcia says uh, $15 bill instead of $20 bill in there. Must have been some kind of running joke, inside joke with the band. Um, but the, when they get to the guitar solo on this, I mean, Garcia and Jerry just goes off, man. It's like up to that point, well, this would be in contention for best of ever friend of the devil. It's that good. Uh, if you don't know it, you got to check it out, man. Great friend of the devil. Uh, then the show uh, rolls along with some... Uh, desirable tunes you got Minglewood blues in the third spot uh not not the greatest Minglewood. there's hotter Minglewoods. then they do dire wolf looks like rain then comes the new songs from shakedown a very good early version of stagger lee uh the reworked hunter garcia folk tune um you know and then after that uh weir breaks out his new tune i need a miracle and man, it is rip roaring energy. The guitar work is great. The band's just crushing it. 
uh, Weir misses a few lyrics. I'm not sure they had it exactly down uh, what what the lyrics they wanted to settle into on Miracle, but uh, the crowd was going nuts after it. You could just tell it was an explosive explosive performance. And one of the things with uh, I Need a Miracle, the first year or so when the band played that, the guitar solos and the outro jams were great. You know, there was a lot of energy. I always enjoyed I Need a Miracle through the years, but the um, the solos, the outro solo in it was kind of neutered, and uh, you know, it was pretty much just the same every time. They really didn't go off on it. But for the first year or so, I Need a Miracle was just a crushing tune. Uh, the best performance of it is from Springfield, January 15th, 1979. Uh, a lot of you probably know that. It goes into an amazing shakedown that has the coolest beginning of any shakedown. Uh, so uh, that's one worth checking out if you don't know it. Uh, it starts a second set, Springfield, January 15th, uh, 1979. I need a miracle shakedown. Uh, getting back to Giant Stadium, we got uh, Perry, Sing- uh, Perry. <laughs> that's my friend's name, uh, Jerry. Jerry sings uh, an amazing Peggio. And um, great, great version. Uh, they're, they're totally locked in. And the set ends with lazy lightning, supplication, once again, sizzling, crisp. Everything is just straightforward, rock and roll. You know, they had the arena rock, uh, the arena rock feel out on this evening. And a lazy, lazy lightning supplication in this time period often ended the first set. And it was, you know, it was a very electric uh, way to end the set. So uh, very good stuff for the opening set there in Giant Stadium. And it only got stranger and better as the second set starts. The Grateful Dead got East Rutherford, New Jersey, out of their seats and dancing for well over an hour straight before drums with uh, one of the best pre-drums you'll ever hear. Uh, set two starts with uh, Good Lovin'. Uh, very well done, exciting, nice little trade-off vocally between uh, Donna and Bobby in, in the rap section of the song. And then they go into Scarlet Begonias. And uh, the, the place is just uh, euphoric at this point. Uh, Garcia's ripping. Uh, the band has just like a straightforward attack mode. Um, so they, they hit the, the outro of Scarlet. And Garcia's just going on and on, strong like bull. Repetitive licks. You know, just the, the, the slight variation, just on and on. You know, not much of a change of direction, but almost like an overpowering performance. And even when the band decides to go into fire, Jerry just keeps ripping those scarlet, scarlet uh, licks, almost like a uh, fire alarm would go off, which is fitting, um, obviously, since Fire on the Mountain is the next tune. And it's a, a, an historic Fire on the Mountain uh, because in this version, they introduced the almost, almost a blaze uh, verse. Uh, up to this point, Fire on the Mountain only had two verses, this is the first version where they uh, where they add the extra verse, and now you got you got three verses, which means instead of one between verse jam, you got two between verse jams. And I felt that in 1977, after May of 1977, the Scarlet Fires, I mean, especially in the Fire in the Mountain, started to get a little repetitive. Uh, they weren't as long as like the Cornell version, and. I think adding this this second verse on this day in Giant Stadium, uh, it gives Garcia two chances at a between verse solo, so he could either build upon what he did in the first jam, 
where he could totally change direction and do something else in the in the second jam. So a lot of options. It brought a lot, brought a lot more musical diversity to the song. And more is always more, but more Jerry equals better for sure. And um, yeah, very good, very good fire in the mountain. Uh, a lot of good jamming. We're looking at almost a half hour Scarlet Fire here. And then they put together their other great new combo, uh, Estimated Eyes of the World. And in the Estimated um, Smoking Between Verse Jam. And then uh, Weir goes back to sing pretty much at a, nor- at a normal point. Garcia just overruns him. Like, like, get out of my way. You know, no, no stopping Jerry on this night, man. So, um uh, unusually long estimated for the time period. And then that outro jam just goes on once again, on and on. And it kind of unwinds and unwinds and it, it'll finish in its own time. It's one of the longer and better estimated jams, but, uh, unusually long for uh, 1978 in any year where that song really started branching out. And then eyes of the world. And, you know, <laughs> this thing just keeps ripping and ripping, but the cool thing about it, there's uh, each jam is long, but yet the the, the feel there's it's got a mellow feel. A lot of uh, Eyes of the World from this period, the pace pacing got too quick. A lot, you know, a lot. Not just my opinion. A lot of people, a lot of Dead fans felt, feel that you know didn't have the same feel as 1974. It felt a little more too perky. And but this uh, this version from Giant Stadium, September second, you know, Garcia, the, the the beats nice and easy, uh, you know, swaying softly. And Garcia is just rolling along with it, long jams, just uh, really well, well done eyes of the world. And so there, there you have the Scarlet Fire estimated eyes in a row. And I'm, t- I'm taking a guess here. I figured that was probably done, you know, maybe 25 times in, in, grateful, in grateful Dead history. That's just a guess, um, you know, but this one is definitely one of the best where you get those combos back to back, Scarlet Fire and estimated eyes. I still believe the best version of Scarlet Fire and Estimated Eyes back-to-back is Hartford, October 14th, 1983, which is on Dick's Picks uh, 6, but it's close. I mean, this this one is right there with it. So it's 1-in-1-A, one one you could actually call them. So uh, a, a great start. Good loving, Scarlet Fire, Estimated Eyes, just getting everything they can out of it. And uh, the, the you could just hear the crowd on the tape, you know, even through the soundboard, man. It was just a, an electric night in Giant Stadium. Maybe it was a time factor. Maybe it was the roses. But the after drums, uh, a little disappointing for such a great show. You, just, you would have liked to have seen the Grateful Dead finish it off. Uh, it was drums, space, sugar mag, adios. And uh, one more Saturday night encore. A decent sugar mag, but it probably didn't live up to the energy of the uh, show up to that point. Uh, so um, just drums, sugar mag, one more Saturday night. And here's the difference between 1977 and 1978. Uh, 1978, the Grateful Dead were on top of the world as musicians. They were they were playing, kicking ass, and taking names. But they didn't put as much effort into crafting a show. In 1977, like the Grateful Dead almost had like they were out to prove something. And, you know, you look at it, look at all those shows, Cornell, Fox Theater with the uh, playing, big playing Uncle John's loop where they start from the end of playing from from the end of Uncle John's 
and go back to the beginning of Uncle John, you know, incredible. And then they would do like the Hollywood Palladium show, uh, a bunch of Jerry tunes in a row, Warfrat, Terrapin, Morning Dew. And they would do just so many shows with where the band was putting in this set list effort and, um, you know, trying to create great shows. It was, a, it was an obvious intent to do that. I don't feel 1978 has the same intent, but the Grateful Dead are, are the Grateful Dead. And at this point, they're on top of the world, the best live band out there. So it's almost like a, a touch of almost a hubris, arrogance. Um, but they, they were that great that they could just pick up their guitars. Okay, let's play some songs. And they didn't even have to think about what they, what they were going to do. Just you know, play the typical songs, let it roll. And one of the things which probably hurt them a little bit in 78 was they only played Morning Dew once, which didn't leave them many options after drums for uh, Jerry ballads. They would they had to improve that area. But there were exceptions to this in 1978. Uh, take the Red Rock show, where the Grateful Dead were inspired and put together, I, I would call that probably the show of 1978, the July 8th show, which was, they played two nights in Red Rocks, July 7th and July 8th. Uh, the July 8th show was brilliant, so well-crafted, uh, over overabundance of great songs, so they really put the effort in that night. But some of the shows of 78 just lacked the uh, the effort and intent of uh, 1977, and maybe that's why the, the band started looking for a new direction and thought of replacing Keith and uh, Donna. Um, they they kind of needed to change as they were m- moving forward into uh, 1979. Let's uh, segue to my favorite of all the September 2nd shows, 9280 War Memorial Auditorium, Rochester, New York. Uh, the Grateful Dead were on a, an amazing run at that point. Uh, they played a couple of shows in Philly on August 29th and 30th. Uh, they're both great shows, but there's some versions from that uh, August 30th show which are just off the hook especially in that first set, maybe the best out, not maybe, the best Althea ever, better than the uh, famed one from May 16th, uh, 1980 in the Coliseum. Uh, incredible Jack Straw, top five Jack Straw, great fire on the mountain, feel like a stranger to open that first set. Uh, it was one, one of the better ones. First time they ever opened a set would feel like a stranger, or at least the first set, and then it became a fixed in that position pretty much, feel like a stranger. Um, but yeah, that that uh, Philly show is spectacular. And uh, August 31st, the show before this one, the second set of that show was just unbelievable. I'm going off the top of my head here, like a greatest story, Uncle John's, um, there's a Sailor Saint, uh, an amazing truck and before drums, just uh, some of the hottest stuff. Oh, it comes a time. One of my favorite comes a times also, all that stuff before drums. So they came, they came into the uh, War Memorial on fire. And just a little little side story about um, R- Rochester. Uh, I, I was I became a, my first show was three nine eighty one. So it wasn't until nineteen eighty one that I really started getting into the Grateful Dead. So I just missed the Rochester show by a little bit, but it's always been one of my favorite tapes. It was among my first dozen. Uh, about three years ago, I was getting a new car. You know, I'm sitting in the Honda dealer. A salesperson goes to get my uh, license plate, and I'm having this thought like. That would be cool if my first, uh, like, if I had a vanity plate, um, I might do, like, 3981 MSG to honor my first show on my plate. Of course, I'm not going to do that, but I thought it would be cool, a cool thing if I, if I did do a vanity plate to do 3981 MSG. 
the dealer comes back, shows me my plate. The last four digits on it are 9280. <laughs> no kidding. 9280. Those are the last four digits of my New York State license plate. So uh, an incredible, <laughs> a, um, a bizarre moment in the Honda dealership, but uh, proud, proud to drive my car around with those 9280 plates. So on, on that night, uh, the Grateful Dead open up. And they're always hot in New York, upper New York State, Rochester, Binghamton, Cornell, anywhere in that, you know, within a couple hundred mile uh, radius of Albany and New York City, uh, Grateful Dead always brought their best. Open up with uh, Minglewood, nothing crazy, just uh, something to warm up with. Uh, then they go into Sugar Ree. Uh, very cool. In the, in the second solo, Brent does a very nice, uh, nice jam at the end of the second solo. And Garcia goes off on the third solo. Uh, 1980 was a great year for Sugary. You also got the Anchorage Sugary from June 21st, 1980. And Lewiston would come on uh, September 6th. Those are the two best Sugarys from the year. But this one's right up there, probably in the third spot. Very good Sugary. Set a good tone for the night. Um, it rolls into El Paso. A great song on the heels of Sugary. The Garcia's picking, from going from Sugary to El Paso just... It works. It's very fluid. Um, then Friend of the Devil's in the fourth spot. And I know I mentioned how great the Giant Stadium Friend of the Devil was. This one's right up there with it. I mean, that Garcia's just shredding. Brent's doing his thing. Great keyboard solo. Um, I love these uh, slow Friend of the Devil's. You know, um, the, the, it's great that they played the, uh, the the quick ones early on, 72 to 74. But the way Jerry turned this into a ballad and really sunk his heart and soul into Friend of the Devil. Uh, yeah, I, I love these, the, the ballad Friend of the Devil versions. Uh, following Devil, you know, a nice little choice. It's all over now. Um, it's sort of rare for the time. But but the following, a good, a good it's all over now too, man. Garcia was uh, percolating, hitting some hot leads that I noticed when I listened to this again. Uh, but something that was definitely rare, China Cat, Rider in the middle of the set, so it's all over now. China Cat Rider and China Cat always blows blows the crowd apart. Like the uh, crowd goes crazy every time that that song's played. It's it's a, a deadhead favorite, but to catch in the thrill of catching it in the middle of the first set, and the stronger part of the of the of this duo was the Rider. The Rider was very hot, but just a, a great uh, continuing the great tone of the show and. Uh, on the heels of that, uh, it's a night of combinations, and also the Grateful Dead are now going to heaven because the next four songs are all from their new album. Uh, we got Lost Sailor, Santa Circumstance, Don't me, Don't Ease Me Into to finish the set, and then Althea Topin set two. So that's four uh, consecutive performances from their 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 new album, Go to Heaven. But uh, Sailor Saint on the heels of Cat Riders, pretty awesome. We think about there was a lot of uh, second sets where Cat Rider, Sailor Saint, uh, would be the pre-drums segment. So in the first set, you're getting a whole pre-drum segment, uh, pretty much in the second half of the set, and it closes up uh, with "Don't Don't Ease Me In," pleasant song. You know, maybe not the uh, most jamming way you want you want to end a set, but hey, uh, the way this first set went with all the uh, great songs you got, the Great Devil, Great Sugary. China Cat and you know huge set from Garcia. We're with the Sailor Saint, just a, a very top notch first set, and it's only going to get stranger and better in set two.
So it, they, they open up with Althea. And as I already mentioned, they played this great version on uh, August 30th in the Philly Spectrum. So I can't compare it to that because nothing compares to that one. But it's a great Althea. Um, Garcia is probably not, they're, they're not pounding it as hard as they did that night in Philly or on uh, the, the great Nassau Coliseum version. But this is without doubt, you know, a top, top-notch version, uh, nice extended solo, a little more laid back than, than the, the great one at the Philly Spectrum. But a great way to kick off the uh, set. Then you got C.C. Ryder, solid version of C.C. Ryder. And then they, they get into a mellow, a mellow role with Ship of Fools. Now, at this point, you know, if, you, if you're listening to tape and you don't know what's coming, or you're just listening to me here, Althea's C.C. Ryder, Ship of Fools, uh, might not be the most uh, wanted start to his second set. But um, from this point forward, the, this show is off the charts. Uh, one, one of the best shows. Um, they go into Estimated Profit. Excellent version, uh, good good between verse solo, long, dreamlike uh, jamming at the end, and this show like the, the difference in, in feel is uh, between this show and the one from Giant Stadium is 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 very noticeable. Um, you know this show they're taking their time. There's a lot of nuance and twists and turns and Grateful Dead weirdness, as opposed to the straight-ahead attack, attack of Giants, the Giants Stadium show, which in its own way was amazing. So it's great to have both both sides. But on this night, there's a lot of listening and conversation between the musicians. Brett Midland's effect on the band is could be clearly heard. He's, he's playing great on this show. Uh, and Estimated, oh, by the way, Estimated just dwindles into Terrapin Station. So uh, Rochester's totally pumped. Great version of the of uh, Robert Hunter's uh, unbelievable anthem. Uh, Jerry sings it beautifully on this night and throughout most of 1980. Jerry Garcia's voice was incredible, so a uh, very good version of uh, Terrapin. And you think it's going to go into drums? They've already uh, put in some time here before drums, but they bust into playing another long song. So they get um, you know they rip into playing. Uh, the jamming's very hot, and um, hey, that's a pretty cool pre-drums estimated Terrapin playing to hit the four, five, six uh, slot, and then you got drums. And what happens after drums is insane. The stuff of uh, <laughs> the stuff of dreams, and it ended up uh, this. What happened after drums? Uh, the space Ico Morning Dew Sugar Magnolia. Ended up as a segment on Dick's Picks 21 uh, the, uh, after the, the Richmond show that Dick picked out for that um, that particular volume, that particular release. Uh, they added the, the Space Ico Morning Dew Sugar Mag. And um, the, the reason I'm thinking they, they never released the whole uh, 9280 show in its own right was probably that I think they're missing some of the sound board recordings. It wasn't a perfect recording. But the Ico Do Sugar Mag was captured in uh, pristine soundboard quality. Thank goodness. And we get that on Dick's Picks 21. So as they, they come out of drums, you just get a feeling, you know, it, it, even if you're in the audience or you're just listening to it on, on tape or however you listen to the shows, uh, there, there was something 
unbelievable about it. You could just tell that the band was was building towards something. It was as if they were taking pixie dust and throwing it out there on the crowd. You could just tell something was something amazing was brewing. Jerry was was playing these uh, hypnotic leads over like a, an African uh, kind of drum rhythm um, that the, the and bass and the. It's just a, it, was, it was an amazing space. You know, a lot of these great segments start in the space. You could tell the band's psyched and building towards something. And this night they were going to give Rochester something that uh, would be forever, you know, a more immortal. Just a you know a, as amazing a segment as you could ever see. So it just kind of effortlessly floats into Ico, and Ico Ico. And this is my favorite version of Ico. It's it's relaxed. It's nice. Um, it's just it's perfect coming out of space. And you could, the crowd the crowd's going nuts and. You, you could tell something bigger is going to happen. It's just one of the when you hear the music, you could just tell this isn't just Ico. Is it's, it's going to be part of a bigger segment, and, and the, the band knows it, and everybody could feel it. So it's a great Ico. Uh, Brent's keyboard work on it is beautiful, and it's really different from any Ico. Just the the tempo of it, a little bit slower, a little bit more hypnotic, and then boom! At the end of it, they take Ico for six, seven minutes, and then they make the transition that everybody wanted to hear. Morning Dew. Euphoric pandemonium breaks loose in Rochester when they break into that dew, man. It's it's really something to behold. Uh, in 1980, um, this was only the fourth Morning Dew. It was a rare tune at the time. Um, it's always such a, it's like a religious experience uh, when, when you're out there seeing a Morning Dew. But especially when it was as rare as it was at the time, um, Rochester was just on their heels in love with the Grateful Dead. And Garcia's version, I mean, Garcia's singing here, just like it's so soulful. And, you know, it really digs in. There's nothing. This is the way Morning Dew should be performed. It's it's a perfect version, like in, in every way from the singing to the spacing, the, the silence. When the band doesn't play, they know when not to play, uh, that kind of thing. And the audience responds like it's it's a religious service at the right times, uh, cheering on the morning dew. Um, Phil's laying down the bombs in that first jam. Uh, everything's just building to this uh, momentous uh, peak. And um, when Jerry hits that final, it doesn't matter anyway. He only sang it twice, and that that last time he sang it, it was just it was perfect. He didn't need to do it three or four times. It was just it was perfect. And then layer by layer, this morning dew is just crazy because it starts off so so beautifully. Like you you listen to those opening notes coming out, and it's just it's amazing how the band and the audience are listening to what Jerry's doing and, and just responding to it incrementally as they should and it, it just builds and builds and it hits the perfect climax and at this time the the, the band in um in the recent shows they were doing and, and this show they would do the like these thunderous fanning finales that were just uh mind-blowing and it, so 1980 especially this particular tour was an incredible time where the band was totally lock lock and step um you know and this is one of the great dues I would put it up there in the top three dues. Might even be the be the best because 
every part of it. There's like a, almost a perfection to it. Now, there's a, few, a couple others where I might think the instrumental Garcia's work might be a little better. I like this one better than Cornell. Uh, I think I'll take uh, Alexandria Palace might 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 go up head to head with this one. Um, but whatever, I think there's just the consistency and everything they did in this morning do that just works. And um, what? no other perfect way to finish out this segment than a rocking Sugar Magnolia. It releases all the tension, and it's like a, the greatest celebration song after hearing an Ico Morning Dew. So what a segment. I mean, Ico Morning Dew was the only time they played it, and f- finishing off that little finale with Sugar Magnolia. And once again, once they hit that the jamming part of Sugar Magnolia, very hot, very hot version. And um, once again, it's that thundering, fanning, uh, you know, with a band, everybody's just crunching the, crunching the uh, chord progression at the same time, quicker and quicker. And they just they had something going on this tour, man. That was that was special. And uh, so space, Ico, do Sugar Magnolia, a. Uh, for a moment, uh, a three-song segment that will forever be remembered as one of the great segments in Grateful Dead history, for sure. And you're, you're done with all that, and you think you might get a throwaway. You know, the encore is usually left something to be desired after after a great uh, finale like that. But hey, on this night they broke out Alabama Getaway, and um, I would have loved to see an Alabama Getaway as a as an encore. I never, never saw it in my days. But in 1980, they played Alabama Getaway as an encore, I believe, uh, eight times. So it wasn't too unusual, but it was a great way to follow up on this segment, man. And I, I really think that would have been an amazing encore for the Grateful Dead to play more often, Alabama Getaway. But um, yeah, this, this Rochester show, I do believe, is the best uh, top show of 1980. So after this uh, fall 1980 Northeast tour... The Grateful Dead were off to play those amazing acoustic electric shows in uh, the Warfield, Sanger Theater in New Orleans, and then Radio City in New York City. So it was an inspired time for the band. And um, hey, September 2nd, Deadology, an inspired date and an essential date in Grateful Dead history. And thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed uh, the podcast. I'll obviously be back next week with something uh I think I'm going to dip into that Nassau Coliseum show from 73, um, September 7th, 1973. It's the 50th anniversary of that great show. Let, yeah, let's get into some early 70s stuff. I've been hanging in the uh, the 80s a lot here. So some early 70s, I'll, ha- I'll have that out next week. But uh, thanks for listening. My website, www.tangleupintunes.com. You can find all my books on there, including Deadology Volume 1 and Volume 2, Uh, I'm Howard Weiner. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Peace out. Short break. We'll be back in just a few minutes, so everybody hang loose.